So I realize that, by and large, I'm in a room full of people that I know, but I know you all to varying degrees. Some of you I know better than others. Those of you who know me really well know the fact that I'm not a very fun person. Uh, if you don't know me, hi, my name's Travis. I'm not very fun. Uh, like one of the one things that I really dread in conversation is when somebody asks me, what do you do for fun? And my response is, sit, r read books, <laughs> write sermons. And they say, oh, that's what you do for work. And I said, I know, there's just no distinction in my mind. Like I don't, I don't have fun hobbies. I just kind of am on all the time. And so if you've ever actually wondered, maybe, maybe you're new to this ministry, maybe you've been around for a while and you say to yourself, you know, why don't they ever do any like fun things outside of Thursday nights? The answer is because I don't know how to have fun. But if you in fact do, please enlighten me. Like I'm all for fun. I just don't think I'm very good at having it. So please come teach me your ways. Tell me what fun things we should do with our budget. But the one thing that I do... I actually have fun doing is just kind of hanging out and having conversations with people. Uh, one of the things that, that is fun for me is just sitting either at, at a coffee shop or at somebody's house in some sort of location and just talking with a group of people that I enjoy being around. And we don't have to be talking theology. Like, you don't have to debate the, the Trinitarian theology of Augustine for me to have fun. Like, we can talk about whatever. We can talk about stranger things or, or whatever is hip to the young people these days. Like, that's fine. But... But for me, that's about as close as I get to like, man, this is, this is a good time. Let's hang out. Let's talk. I'm really painting myself in a negative light right now. That's all I got. Um, but one of the things I've noticed as somebody who's maybe like a, a connoisseur of conversations, if you will, uh, is that there is a point over the course of any conversation, no matter how good it is, where it sort of noticeably goes south. And not that it always takes a turn for the worse, not that everybody's at odds with each other, but everybody kind of has this sense. It's like this collective realization, oh, we're kind of done here. Like, like, there's not really much more to talk about, and so now it's a matter of figuring out how to leave this hangout session in a graceful way. Normally, this sort of sets in when everybody stops talking and looks at their phones, and, and I would venture to say, if you're anything like me, when that happens, you don't actually care about what's on your phone, you're looking at your phone as a way to think through, how do I gracefully leave because I'm done? Uh, or maybe somebody, and this is relatively graceful, you say things like, well, I'm sure you guys have stuff to do. I'll let you get to that. It makes it sound like you're really like, considerate of other people, but really, you just know the conversation's over, it's time to leave. Or, or maybe you say something like, yeah, I've, I've got work tomorrow, so I should probably get to be getting, even though you may or may not have work tomorrow. That's just sort of a cultural way of saying, all right, we're done here. Like, no matter how great this was, no matter how positive it was, uh, the conversation, the well of conversation has run dry. Much in the same way that there's sort of a sense in every, every time spent with other people of when things are coming to a close, there is a sense as we come to our text for the evening that Paul's time with the Corinthians is drawing to a close. Even if you didn't look ahead to see that there's only two paragraphs left, as you read this text that we'll be in, which is uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 21, you get this sense, all right, we're done here. Like everything that I've given uh, the last 13 chapters towards, everything I've been saying, I've come to the point where I've exhausted it. The well has run dry. Let me restate it one more time, and this is done. So let me read our text for us this evening as Paul sort of gives his dying breath of encouragement and challenge to the Corinthians. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this, I have been a fool, but you force me to it. 
for I ought to have been commended by you. I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The sign of a true apostle was performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me of this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to send the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. And perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they've practiced. Paul starts this section of our text with what feels to me like this great sigh of exhaustion, this great and final sort of venting of his frustration. He says, I've been a complete fool, and you made me do it. It reminds me, for better or for worse, of uh, the scene in like the third season of The Walking Dead where one character kills another one and he goes, you did this, not me. You, you forced me to this. And Paul is deeply frustrated. It's as if he says here in, at the beginning of the end, at the, at the real pinnacle of this downhill slope, it shouldn't have had to be this way. It shouldn't have had to come to this. But here we are, where you've dragged me. And he explains why it is that it shouldn't have had to be this way. He says to them, listen, I performed the signs of an apostle in front of you. Now, we don't know what all that is. It's probably preaching. It's probably having seen the risen Christ. It's probably miracles. He says, I've treated you fairly. I treated you just like all of the other churches. The only thing I didn't do was ask for your money, and that's pretty nice of me, actually. And yet here we are. At the end of all of this, in this deep-seated tension, it's not enough for you. I've been a fool, and you forced me here. You know, as I think about the Corinthian rejection of Paul, I'm not going to keep killing a dead horse. You know all of the reasons why the Corinthians didn't want Paul to be their apostle, why they rejected him, why they decided to find somebody that was more entertaining and interesting. But as I think about it, man, I do wonder if it shouldn't caution us to be a lot more careful in the way that we criticize leadership within our church and the wider church. I do wonder if it, if it shouldn't caution us to be just a little bit more cautious about how quickly we levy criticism, how quickly we call people unfit for leadership. Because I'm, I'm not saying that pastors are beyond critique. 
I'm not, I'm not saying that elders and church leaders don't make mistakes. There are horribly wicked people who should not be pastoring churches, and the best possible thing that can happen in the church is that they be exposed and they be cast out of that role. And I'm not saying that, that pastors are beyond sin. Listen, I sin. I do bad things. And sometimes I don't feel bad about doing bad things. And sometimes I need people to come to me and say, what's wrong with you? What are you, what are you doing here? And, and just know, as the pastor of this ministry, you have the freedom to come to me if I've offended you or if you think that I'm walking in a way that's not in, in step with the gospel. You have the freedom to come to me and say that. I need accountability just as much as everybody else in the body of Christ. And yet, I, here's what I want to caution you from the way that the Corinthians handled this. Be careful that your criticisms are in fact biblical and they're not just a matter of personal preference that you've projected onto the Bible. Be careful that when you criticize a, a leader of the church or call into question their ability to lead, be sure that you're not criticizing them according to your opinion rather than the biblical standard. Because I'm sure that the Corinthians were able to find some sort of a way as to why Paul was unfit to lead and we need to find somebody else. And yet, Paul meets all the criteria. There is nothing about Paul that makes him unfit to lead this church other than the fact that they wanted something different based on their culture and Paul wasn't offering it. So Paul continues in his addressing the Corinthians in verse 14. He says here, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden. The first time would have been when he planted the church. Uh, the second time would have been when he visited the church and they rebelled against him and kicked him out. And now he comes to the third time. He says, heads up, after this letter and the people carrying it, it's me. And he follows back around to saying, I won't burden you this time either, as if to say, I know you were really upset about the fact that I didn't take your money, still not going to take your money. I'm coming back again, and I'm still not playing into this sort of game that you would like me to play in order to think that I'm acceptable. But then he says this. He says, I am coming to you for the third time. It will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. It's as, if, it's as if he says to these people, I'm not after what you could give me financially. I'm not after what you could give me materialistically. What I want is you. What I want is your joy. What I want is your happiness. What I want is for you to truly know Christ as he is. Gosh, if there is not a single sentence that summarizes what Christian friendships should look like, I don't know where it could be found beyond this that I want not what you have to offer me, not the things that you give that make my life better. Instead, I want you. I want the best for you. I want you to know Jesus as he is and not as we are tempted to remake him over into in the image of our culture. I don't know if uh, you're following this. Maybe you're more godly than I am, but the uh, latest Taylor Swift single came out. It's bad. Hey, just so you know, it's bad. Um, unquestionably so. And as I was watching sort of the reactions to this single, there was this criticism that I read, I think it was like Huffington Post or something like that, about just a criticism of Taylor Swift in general, that the more I thought about and the more I prayed and fasted, the more I said, yeah, this is probably true. And the criticism is this, that, that the sort of people that she counsels her friends, the sort of people that she surrounds herself with, are not the sort of people that she has any genuine vested interest in, 
She sort of just surrounds herself with people like somebody would put on like fashionable clothing. She picks the sort of people who are going to add to her image so that if she gets caught in a candid picture with them, it looks good on her Instagram. She surrounds herself with the sort of people who are really only of interest to her because of what they can give her rather than who they are. Now, I don't know if that's true of Taylor Swift or not. Me and Tay-Tay aren't real close. But that criticism is probably true of all of us at any given point in our lives. Profoundly so in the time and day and age in which we live. That our interest in people very often is not in them and their good and their spiritual growth. Our interest in people is based on how they might complete our image. Our interest in people is uh, really what Madonna says. What have you done for me lately? What are you interested or capable of giving me that will make me better, that will add to my look, that will be an accessory, that will make my life be more aesthetically pleasing? I I mean, I, I count myself as guilty in this, but like, think of how many of us sit in coffee shops for hours and we can't tell the difference between a Yurgachev and a cup of Folgers, but we like how it makes us look. We like how it accessorizes us and makes us appear thoughtful and deep and cultured and classy. We do the same thing with people. We are interested not in them, but in what is theirs. And to that idolatrous, wicked view of human beings as things to be used for the benefit of our life, Paul says to the Corinthians, who have again and again and again wronged him, I am not interested in what is yours. I do not want your money I want you. I want what is best for you. Not the way you can improve my brand, but your genuine spiritual good. Not the things you can offer me, but your own best interest. Oh, that that would define your relationships with your neighbors. That that would define your relationships with one another in this room. That it would be the paradigm of the way that you interact with the lost. That they're not just another notch on your evangelistic belt to show that you're fulfilling the Great Commission, but they are people for whom you genuinely care. You want not what they have to offer or the way that their conversion might make you appear spiritual, but you want them and what is best for them. And then Paul jumps into this image that should probably have some bearing on all of us. He says, children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Now, some of us in this room are parents. All of us in this room have parents, whether you talk to them or know who they are or not. And most of us in this room will become parents. So the parenting image, kind of universal. It's it's something that that grasps all of us in some way, shape, or form. And I realize that, that cultures differ on sort of what a parent-child relationships look like, relationship looks like. And I realize that when somebody moves from like childhood to adulthood, there's different rites of passage. I realize that it's different, but generally speaking, across the board of human experience, there is this understanding. Parents' job is to care for their kids, not the other way around. Uh, Nobody is taking their three-year-old and making him pay rent. I don't know how a three-year-old would. He'd pay it in like poop and goldfish. It's all he has to offer. People who don't take care of their kids, we send to jail or we take their kids away. There is an understanding that there is a parental obligation towards their children. Your job as the parent is to care for them until they can care for themselves. Paul takes this role for himself. 
He says, you Corinthians are my spiritual children. It is not your job to take care of me. It is my job to take care of you. It's not your job to pay me. It's my job to care for you and make sure that you grow in a way that is safe and healthy and mature. And then he has this line that that I'll, I'll just tell you. When I was praying about whether or not we would spend as much time as we have in this book, I read it through two or three times. And it was this line coupled with two or three others that sold me on the whole book of 2 Corinthians. He says, children are not obligated to say for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. It's as if he says to these Corinthians, listen, the costliness of your spiritual life is not going to fall on you. It will fall on me. I will spend and be spent for your sake. And this is two different things. He talks about spending. This is material cost. Because Paul is living in Corinth and is not getting paid for everything he's doing. So this comes at financial cost to him. He's got to find a way to pay ends meet. So there's a material cost that he's willing to sacrifice for the Corinthians. I will spend for you. But he also says, I will be spent. He's talking about the emotional cost the, the psychological cost of truly caring for somebody and leading them towards Christ. I will spend for you, but I will also be spent for you. Now you may hear that and think, that's, that's noble. Good on you, Paul. You have this sort of sacrificial faithfulness to people. You, you care about people in a way that is self-giving. That would make for a great movie about Paul's uh, exemplary kindness. But Paul's not reinventing the wheel here. Uh, Paul, Paul is not drawing this idea out of thin air. Paul, in his relationship with the Corinthians of spending, giving of his resources, and being spent giving of his very life, he is only imitating what he's already experienced. He's only doing what he has already been the recipient of. That while he was still rich and well-off and well-respected, the Son of God made himself nothing. While he was still a sinner, Christ died for him. While he was a persecutor of the church of God, the Son of God gave his very life to bring Paul back into right standing. The only thing that Paul is doing is imitating Jesus in the way that he relates to the Corinthians. Spending and being spent for their good, no matter how costly it might be. It'd be tempting to to, to listen to this and think, well, that's Paul's job. He's an apostle. He gets to write the Bible. So this is sort of the calling of Paul, but, but hear me when I say this. This sort of sacrificial, faithful way of loving people, it's not just the call of pastors, although it rests heavy on me. It's not just the call of apostles, although no doubt it rested heavy on Paul. It is the call of every single person who has known Jesus and encountered the gospel, that you would love people in this way that you would pour yourself out for their good and for their sake. Oh, that would be true of the way that you talk to one another, the way that you talk to your friends who don't know the Lord. I will gladly spend and be spent for your soul. I will do what I need to do for your good. Now, if you're listening to this and really thinking this through, probably recognize that that is not an easy task. That sort of friendship, that sort of faithfulness is costly. It's hard. It opens you up to 
the sort of ache and the sort of pain that you would not have experienced had you remained closed. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, describes the cost of loving people this way. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung out and possibly broken. But if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries and avoid all entanglements. This is a hard way of living. And we should just be honest about that. Caring about people not for what they give you, but for who they are and for their ultimate good is not easy. Spending and being spent for the sake of other people, difficult, painful, potentially costly, because it may come a point in your relationship with somebody else where you have spent all that you have and they have not reciprocated it. That they haven't responded by coming to know Christ. They haven't responded by turning from whatever sin they're in. They haven't responded by even being a good friend to you. It is a potentially costly reality. And Paul feels this. You see it in verse 20. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may find you not as I wish, that you may find me not as you wish. And perhaps there will be quarreling and jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. He says that at the end of all this, at the end of the letters and the visits, I'm afraid that I'm going to show up and all of the pain that I've experienced is going to be for absolutely nothing. And you're still going to be disappointed in me because I'm the fat Jewish guy with a unibrow who can't speak well. I actually just read an early Christian commentary and they said that Paul had a unibrow. I don't know if it's true or not, but possibly. I don't know why I included that. Um, but he has this fear. I have, I have just spent my everything on you and nothing may change. And, and here's, here's the great tragedy of 2 Corinthians. I, I wanted to kind of wait till we were towards the end before I mentioned this because it would sort of ruin the whole book otherwise. Um, we don't know how Paul's third visit went, but we've got a letter from a church leader named Clement from about 90 to 95 AD, so about 20 to 30 years later. And the Corinthians took all their church leaders and excommunicated them because the church leaders were telling them to repent of sin. They did exactly to Paul what, or they did exactly to their later church leaders what they'd done to Paul, except it was the children of the people that Paul was talking to. And so they did exactly what their parents did to Paul to their parents who were leading them. So it did not get better. I, I don't know what Paul's third visit looked like, but based on history, I don't know that it went particularly well. And when you hear that, you might think, well, then what's the point in living like this? Like, what's the point in pouring yourself out for people? What's the point in living this sort of sacrificial life if there's the possibility that it's just going to hurt more than it's going to help? There's the possibility that there's going to be such pain in the midst of it that, it, that it's not worthwhile. Oh, I just want to say this. The other option to you is far worse. C.S. Lewis describes your options in this way. He says, if you would like to keep your heart safe, lock it up in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. There's a, a costliness to living this life that Paul models for us, spending and being spent for the sake of other people, wanting them and their good rather than what they give us. And yet, 
It is the only way to live a life of real joy. It is the only way to truly live a life of satisfaction. And it's the life that Christ lived. And, and there's, this, there's this very real possibility that in the midst of living like this and loving people in this way, and being faithful like this, that you might find yourself in mourning, but Christ's promise is that those who mourn will be comforted. So here's my hope, as we're down to the last two weeks of 2 Corinthians, that Paul's words would be your own words towards one another. That they would be your own words towards the people you know who are not believers, who are your neighbors, your friends, the people that you work with, that you would be able to say to them, knowing full well the cost of this reality, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I seek not what is yours but you. And may that be your song until your pitcher is broken at the fountain and you see with your eyes the one who has spent himself for you.